0: Hi, it's Mark Rivera from the Billy Joel Band, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Peace and love. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome. To the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is superstar musician Nils Lofgren, an iconic figure in rock music. He's been a longtime member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. He's played with Neil Young and Crazy Horse. He's played with Ringo Starr. His own band, Grin, released four albums, and he's had an outstanding solo career. He's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he's got a new album out called Mountains that features Ringo, Neil Young, and a guy named Ron Carter, favorite of mine who was recently on my podcast. And in the middle of this episode, we're going to do what I call a song fest, which I love to do with all my musician guests. Nils and I are going to play a handful, a little bit, of some of his greatest works, and we'll talk about them, and you'll get the backstory. And nobody does this in podcasts other than yours truly. And I also, as you know, like to feature a song of mine, underneath the introduction and at the end of every podcast episode. And I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen my song called My Love from my 2023 album, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. Why did I choose this? Well, Nils has played with Neil Young. And a lot of people think that My Love has a Neil Young kind of vibe. And who am I to argue with that? So, Nils Lofgren, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby.
1: Thanks, Robert. What a nice intro. And I want to hear that song of yours when we get a chance. But
0: You'll you'll get a chance, I promise. All right. All right, listen. I want to start with something a little off the beaten path, okay? I love the fact that you started out on accordion, okay? Not too many people probably know that. Right. 10 years you spent on the accordion. How many times did you play Lady of Spain?
1: Oh, man. I mean, I played at spaghetti dinners and every family function played quite a few. Forgot to count.
0: How did you get started on accordion and why?
1: Strange thing. I uh, was born on the south side of Chicago near Midway Airport. My dad was a three-year-old immigrant from Sweden, became a citizen, pilot in World War II at a USO dance. After World War II, he met my mom, whose parents were from Nicosia, Sicily. My mom was born in Chicago. They fell in love, got married. I was the first of four boys. And I don't know why, but the neighborhood I was in, South Side of Chicago, growing up, so many kids were playing accordion. I had a couple cousins that were playing it. Frankie Graziano, Gary Gentile. And so when I was five years old, I just, you know, seeing my cousins play it at weddings and stuff, I thought, Mom and Dad, can I take accordion lessons? Now, They uh, paid for 10 years of lessons, and I took to it. I loved it. I just loved the study of music. After the waltzes and polkas, they moved me into classical music. And honestly, 10 years of classical music studies was a great backdrop when I fell in love with rock and roll and picked up the blues guitar, early 60s.
0: You know, I was trying to think to myself, how many other rock accordionists were there? And I could only (laughs) come up with two. Okay. Okay. So one of them was Bruce Hornsby, who's a magnificent musician. Agreed. And then I was thinking about Garth Hudson from the band.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Garth. Oh, man. Two great ones. It's funny you say uh, Bruce Hornsby. He's just spectacular. I've I've gone to see him play in bar, clubs here and got out and played with him. But a little known thing, Bruce Springsteen used to do some charity events, Christmas concerts at convention hall in asbury park a funky old convention hall one year i did four five six them. one year bruce hornsby came as a guest and in addition to a couple hits he came out with a little accordion with bruce and they did you sexy thing on the <laughs> accordion i got to play some funk guitar but i thought that was brave of bruce hornsby a fabulous
0: wow player. unbelievable Can you think of any others? Those are the only two guys I could think of.
1: Oh, you know, well, look. I mean, I know the great Roy Bitton, professor in East Street Band, Danny Federici. They both started on accordion. They didn't turn into guitar players, but they started on accordion. In fact, uh, we we'd like to think the East Street Band is one of the few, if not the only, giant rock band with three accordionists. And at times, Bruce has sent all three of us out to the front of the stage playing accordion one night. We did the great old song, Sherry Darling, great boardwalk, ocean, you know, New Jersey shore song. We decided to do an electric band version of Sherry Darling with three accordion players. So um, little known fact about the East Street Band, we're carrying three of them.
0: That's unbelievable. Really unbelievable. All right. So you made the transition to guitar. Was, was that because of what was happening in the world at that time? Or what was the reason that you went over to the guitar?
1: Yeah, you know, I was totally immersed in classical music, you know, 11, 12, 13, maybe 13 or so, The Beatles and Stones came out. The Beatles in particular, the the addition of melody and harmonies, uh, and, and my age, maybe I was when I was 10 or 11, I, I think I was too square to really get Jerry Lee Lewis or anything like that. But the emotional age of maybe another couple of years, mixed with the... Um, the deep soul and rawness of the Beatles, but with those extra harmonies and, and instrumentation, I freaked out. I fell in love with it. It was like a possession. And quickly, between the Stones and Beatles, the British Invasion, American counterpart with the Birds, Springfield, on and on, Stacks, Vault, Motown, through them, I discovered Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Little Richard. It was kind of an explosion, tidal wave of music. And uh, while I was playing accordion, my brother Tommy started playing guitar in the house. My dad had a beat-up old acoustic. He didn't really play, but he owned it. Tommy started showing me some chords. Ninth-grade variety show, I played a Beatles medley on my accordion. (laughs) Another band, dear friend Howie Queller, who's a great doctor in Texas now, he had a band on stage with three guys playing rock and roll, and they were called the Radical Five. So that's pretty wild. Three
0: guys called the Radical Five. I like that.
1: Anyway, I joined the Radical Five as an accordionist, but the die was cast. Tommy started showing me guitar, and I fell in love with it. Eventually, I stopped taking accordion lessons. Never stopped playing the accordion. Played in all the teen clubs, you know. Played the great hits of the day, which was amazing. No one ever in you know middle America in the mid '60s thought you could do that for a living. But we loved. Hendricks, The Stones, Beatles, all of it. And uh, one night, saw The Who, Hermits, Hermits, and the Blues Magoos at Constitution Hall, spectacular. Ran over to the Ambassador Theater, our imitation Fillmore with the big light show, uh, like Bill Graham's place. And we saw Jimi Hendrix' Experience Late Show. And that night, Jimi blew my mind so much. When I walked out, I had a really an uncomfortable possession of telling me, Nils, you have to try to be a professional rock musician. I was like, no, you can't do that. Say, no, you have to try it. And it was Jimmy that night. The Beatles and Stones got me, you know, sold. And through them, I discovered all of it within months. But it was Jimmy who possessed me with the idea of giving it a shot. And uh, I was off to the races 55 years ago this September.
0: That is amazing.
1: I hit the road Eighteen. And I went to Mer- dropped out of high school, ran away to New York, struck out, came back, put Grin together. Fast forward, uh, you know, I was about to go to LA. I snuck in backstage, asking for advice. I didn't know anything about show business. Walked in on Neil Young at the cellar door on his first Crazy Horse tour. Long story short, we became friends. I was headed to LA in three weeks anyway. Said, "Look me up." I'll help you out. True to his word, he did. His producer, David Briggs, took us under his wing. But fast forward two years later on my 19th birthday with Grin's first record out after a lot of ups and downs for a couple of years, hit the road when I was 17. We opened three shows for Jimi Hendrix in California, which blew our minds. I was in heaven. He's my hero. And David Briggs, God bless him. We lost him in the 90s. He Encouragement said, No, it's your birthday. You got to go knock on Win- the Winnebago trailer door of Jimi Hendrix and say hi to him. I said, I can't do that. David taught me into it. I knocked on the door. Jimmy answered. I got to shake his hand, talk to him, let him know that story. You're the reason why I'm trying this. I'm your opening act. God bless you. Thanks for everything. Gave him a handshake and went on my way. So, a lot of great stuff back then. You know, Robert, there was no video, there was no internet the only game in town, learn how to play in front of people, and it served us all well.
0: You know, I just told this story recently again, but I'll mention it because you, you're focused on on Hendrix here. There was a, a little place in New York City, in Greenwich Village, called the Café Wa, yes. okay, which still exists there. It's a little dump, okay? But I remember going there. You and I are about the same age. By the way, I started off on trumpet, and when the Beatles came onto Ed Sullivan and the whole British invasion started, I, too, kind of said, what am I doing playing the trumpet? And I switched to guitar and bass, and that's how I started. But going back to the Café Wah, I remember going there when I was a teenager, and I see this house band, and they got a left-handed guitar player. And I had never seen a left-handed guitar player before. I didn't think much of it, but about a year later, this guy comes back from England named Jimi Hendrix, under the tutelage of Chaz Chandler from The Animals. The moment i saw him i said wait a minute that's the left-handed guitar player from the cafe wow oh
1: i was blessed you know that back then there were trains all over the east coast there still are but uh, i just hopped trains and go to different cities in the northeast to see jimmy I, I got to see him probably 15 20 times of course open full and three nights with grin but he was certainly of all the greats he was uh he was my hero i mean jimmy hendrix Jeff Beck, Roy Buchanan really were like my top three in, in lead playing and and just all that stuff. And, of course, you had uh, Pete Townsend, George Harrison, Keith Richards with the two and three note. You know, they literally wrote songs as they played riffs. And they just such a wealth of great guitar players to this day. I mean, even as I got older, you know, like, it's funny, I just saw a video this morning somebody sent of uh, Glenn Campbell and Roy Clark Jr., amazing players. There's so many great. But man, Jimmy was the guy who imprinted the hell out of me and made me want to try to turn professional 55 years ago.
0: All right. So you were part of that whole British Invasion era, just like I was. What were your favorite groups at that time?
1: Well, you know, I love melody and and mixing it with rhythm and some of the uh, more complex harmonies. Really, I mean, of course, the Birds, Buffalo, Springfield, Moby Grape. I love Moby Grape. Got to open for Moby Grape, The Hollies, Wow, uh, one of the two great bands, of course, from two different sides of the pond. But The Animals were unbelievable. And uh, even Herman's Hermits, live, they were great. They had some big hits. But The Who, uh, you know, of course, The Beatles, Stones, The Whole British Invasion, there's a long list of them. And a lot of great hits. But, you know, both sides of the, the pond, the wealth of great bands making melodic, funky, soulful rock and roll was staggering back in the mid-60s. And, you know, we all fell in love with it, all my kids and friends. And uh, it was a real renaissance. Then, of course, on top of that, Vault and Motown. I mean, I love the Supremes records, Stevie Wonder, fellow with Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin. Again, as I got turned on through, really, The Beatles and Stones, Sam Cooke. Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Little Richard. I discovered all this amazing soulful music through the British Invasion bands.
0: It was a remarkable time for sure. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. In 1994, I recorded my first album called Miles Behind. It features world-class guest musicians like Randy Brecker of Blood, Sweat & Tears, Anton Figg of The David Letterman Show, Al Foster from Miles Davis' band, and Tim Reese from The Rolling Stones. I'm excited to say that this album has just been released on the internet for the first time. The 10 tracks include originals Like child's play, plus reimagined covers of Jimi Hendrix's Fire. Chick Corea's Sea Journey I'm very proud of this album. It's crossover jazz that's been called hip tight and edgy. I think that captures it. Miles Behind can be streamed on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms. As always, I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. All right, listen, this is a good segue into that Songfest portion, because you were talking about when you first met Neil Young. Right. And, uh, you know, this goes back, I guess, to the late 60s, early 70s. I think he made After the Gold Rush, that wonderful album in 1970. And you were front and center on that album, playing piano. Am I right?
1: Yeah, I was 18 and, um, you know, out in Topanga neil and david said hey we're doing this project after the gold rush we'd like you to play in the core band some guitar sing some piano and i said guys i mean these were like brothers to me i lived with david for over a year saw neil almost every day he jammed with my band at the corral the local bar in topanga where we were regular playing there and uh so it was at this point they were kind of like big brothers and so i was honest like guys I'm not a professional piano player. And I said, well, you know, you studied classical accordion for 10 years. You won some contests. We need simple parts. And we like your sense of melody and rhythm. We think you can handle it. So, of course, at that point, when David and Neil Young, David Briggs and Neil Young say they think you can handle it, you, you stop arguing. and You just say, thank you. I practiced my ass off. I wasn't sure it would work out. I was blessed at 18 that it worked out beautifully.
0: All right, well, we're playing now underneath us, Only Love Can Break Your Heart, which was one of the wonderful songs from that album. And you're playing piano on that. Me a little bit of your recollections of that session.
1: Yeah, you know, it was interesting. They brought a remote truck from Wally Hyders up into the Topanga Hills. Neil had a beautiful home way up on a kind of a mountaintop. And um, during the day, we just record live in his home, a little home studio. Right above, there was a nice, beautiful open air deck they'd have lunch on. Everybody'd go up there to have lunch, or smoke a joint. Take a break. I never left this upright piano. We call it the Gold Rush Upright. I still play it with Neil.
0: Really? He's still got it?
1: I don't. He does, yes.
0: He's got it. Okay. And as a
1: team of people that keeps it in shape. So whenever <laughs> we play, it's great. And that's one of the many things that are great about Neil. When we play, there's the Gold Rush Upright. There's the Tonight's the Night Baby Grand I played on. It. And Tonight's the Night. They're both on stage. And it's kind of spooky and beautiful to sit there and play the same piano I played when I was 18. But they go up there and I just sit there practicing the songs because, you know, I wasn't really a piano player. My right hand was better because of the accordion, left hand, very simple and deliberate. So a song like Only Love Can Break Your Heart, simple. But, you know, there's just these little melodies that I'd find to move between the different sections. And their instincts were right. You know, you couldn't have probably paid a great gifted session player to play as simple as I did. But for me, I was very engaged, I was very challenged and I was very excited and inspired. And you got some simple parts from someone that was deep, deep into it. And, you know, that was, I remember sitting there, they were above me eating sandwiches, enjoying the view. And I was grateful I didn't have to go up and hang out with them because I just wanted to stay on the Gold Rush upright and practice. And it all worked out. They came back, counted it off. Neil sang live for all those records, playing Beautiful Martin. And we got a beautiful take. We all ran in, you know, and sang some harmony. Danny Witten came in, sang some harmonies with Ralphie. That's one of the great songs on that record.
0: Did Neil Young give you any direction on your playing, or was he just listening and letting you do your thing?
1: You know, he, he pretty much just listened and let me do my thing. I think there... They're thematic. I don't know how much, pre, how premeditated it was, but they had to know that they had someone that they knew for over a year. Uh, when I met Neil at the cellar door and walked in on him, I told him, you know, my band was going to LA. We struck out in New York, da-da-da-da, looking for a break. So, would you have any songs? I said, yeah, I write the song. I said, sing one. He handed me his guitar. I sang Like Rain from The, the Grin Album. Said, That's good. Sing another. I sang five songs from the first Green Record. He liked them all. He went on late hanging out with me. And he even went on stage, and said, Hey, I just met this young kid from here, no he Sofrin. Really great. And I didn't even realize he said that to the audience. So we had a history, and three weeks later, I, I met him in LA and him and David took me under their wing. But at that point, they just really uh had a simple player that was doing simple melodies through all of that record. And that's what they were hoping for. And it worked out. So I didn't get a lot of instruction, uh, just basically, Hey, just be you. And that sounds good. Cause I could never really overplay because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. All right.
0: So listen, let's move to, uh, your relationship with Bruce because, you know, you've had two superstars within your life at least. And, uh, Let's talk about Bruce Springsteen. How'd you meet him and uh, start from there?
1: Well, way back in uh, 1970, as Grin was making our early way, Bill Graham, famous promoter with Fillmore East and Fillmore West, they had an audition night at the Fillmore West where like 15 bands play 20 minutes each. Um, The locals get in free, like a buck for a beer. And you just watch all these young bands trying to get an opening act shot from Bill Graham. I was there with Grinch. Bruce was there with Steel Mill before the E Street Band. Of course, I watched him play. thought he was great. I started following him. I think we met backstage and I started following him ever since then. That was early 1970. Then I'd go to a show, say hello, became distant friends. Uh, I lived in L.A., you know, on and off for a long time from 68 on for 25 years or so. And so uh, sometimes at the Sunset Marquee, before it was a famous uh, hotel with the whiskey bar, back in those days, it was a rock hotel with a little kitchenette right around the corner from Barney's Beanery, great place to have a drink, write some songs, do your laundry across the way. <laughs> but uh, Bruce and I would you know, have talks, and once in a while, we'd. Uh, one day he, we met there, he just finished the Gary U.S. Bonds album. Took a ride in a Camaro up the coast, played the record, beautiful, took a took a break, walked up on a sand dune and just talked a lot. And, um, you know, he asked he asked about my work with Neil Young. Uh, at that point, I think it was a gold rush and Tonight's Tonight I'd done. And I just said, look, I found out at a young age, I love being in great bands and I don't have to be the band leader. I don't need to be the leader and the boss. A lot of solo artists need that control. I love taking a break from being the band leader and I learned that at 18 with Neil Young. So I think Bruce filed that away and through the years we maintained a friendship. Fast forward way to, it was like four weeks before opening night of the Born in the USA tour that Stevie decided to go solo and leave the band. And that was pretty unusual. They'd have to fill you in on their end of the story. But Bruce called me, asked me to come up and jam with the band which i did and after a couple of days of hard jamming he asked me to join and uh, another gift from heaven there if you love being in rock bands yep absolutely
0: all right listen i want to continue the song fest and play right now there's that song that you did with bruce a little bit later this is 1986 i think it's right. called follow that dream
2: together
0: And I want to thank you for doing a song with the same title as my podcast. So tell me about that.
1: Oh, man. So at the end of the uh, Born USA tour, Neil Young had called and said, look, I'm starting these uh, charity shows called The Bridge School. My wife Peggy and I, Peggy, rest in peace, was a dear friend too. And uh, we're going to do an acoustic show of a lot of great players, and raise money for this fabulous bridge school that's still going strong. But that was Neil and Peggy's brainchild. And um, he reached out to Bruce and wondered if Bruce would consider performing, and Bruce decided to. But, uh, you know, Bruce had known... I started doing acoustic shows probably early in the 80s, 80, 80, 81, with my brother Tommy. And so Bruce said uh, he got me on guitar, him, and uh, Danny Federici on accordion. He said, look, Nils, I've committed to doing the Bridge School, uh, and we got together at a rehearsal hall in New York, and he'd really never done that. He asked me about how it was, and I did tell him. I mean, the first time me and Tommy went from Grin and then my solo bands, after hundreds and hundreds of rock shows with electric bands, all of a sudden you're alone with an acoustic guitar and a buddy. It's It's quite frightening in the beginning stages we took to it right away and got good at it bruce the same way but this was his first real outing so we had danny on accordion me on guitar and uh we went there classic bruce springsteen story he's nervous he's not afraid to admit it this is the first time he's ever done this we rehearsed had a good good bunch of songs sounded good to me but it's still a first so just before we start to go out Bruce says, Danny, Mills, wait here. I'm gonna do the first song alone. And it's just kind of a classic way of talk about throwing yourself into the deep end. Bruce, instead of walking out with a guitar and like, okay, it's my first time doing an acoustic show, got my buddies waiting. He walks out with no instrument, all alone, stands at the mic, starts snapping his finger, <laughs> and sings a song, a cappella. With finger snaps, wow! And the place goes crazy. And it was just his way of saying, "Well, if I'm going to jump in. Show me the deep end." Mm-hmm. And then he brought me and Danny out. We had a magical hour. Uh, and one of the great songs I was not aware of that he had written, or a different version of that title, "Follow That Dream." And I got to sing this great harmony with him that you can really hear in the acoustic version.
0: Yeah, spectacular. Okay, let's back up a little bit. We didn't cover Grin. And I want to do that because that was your band for several years. And you had that song White Lies in 1972 that we're playing right now. So tell me a little bit about your feelings on that band.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, we were so blessed to hook up with Neil Young's producer, David Briggs. And, you know, we did our first Grin record. Uh, We couldn't really find a a good record deal because people were like, well, what if you don't work together? They had a lot of what about this, what about that? And uh, David finally borrowed 20 grand from a friend in Canada and we made the first Grin album. Finished mastered so that way he would walk in um and you know we actually had a great manager art linson who's a dear friend still is a great movie producer now and said look here's a finished record if you don't like it i'm leaving we're not changing it it's done and it really made it simple clive davis bless his heart gave us uh, david's his own little spin dizzy label of cbs put out the first grin first three records and the second one uh, just accidentally had some rough songs, some gentle songs. And David said, let's do a one plus one, the gentle side, the dreamy side, the rocking side. So anyway, you know, White Lies is one of the ones we thought might be a single, very melodic, but hard driving, had some good harmonies with Bob Berberick and I. And it just turned out to be a really, you know, David Briggs came up with this idea of me doing octave pianos and he ran through a Leslie to like have a slow Leslie effect. And it really just kind of opened up the song and it just turned out to be one of our better records from the first two albums.
0: Definitely a lovely record. Okay. I want to move because you, you've had so much in your background. Talk about Ringo and playing with Ringo and his all-star band.
1: Well, you know, thanks to Bruce, of course, here I am, my first tour, the, the born in the USA tour. And um, we were playing sports arenas which he's street had been doing for years And Bruce had always said, I'll never play stadiums. So he got so popular and the ticket demand was so great, he had to move into the stadiums to meet the ticket demand. And again, i had done stadium tours. I opened for The Who in like the late 70s. It was The Who, ACDC with Bon Scott singing, the original singer, me, The Stranglers, and Local acts. 6 six-week tour of Europe. Then again, in 83, we did a trans tour with Neil Young all over Europe, stadiums. So I was used to stadiums. Again, Bruce knew that. We talked about it. Took him two or three shows to get great at it. And, um, you know, in London, Wembley Stadium, Max Weinberg had written a great book, still exists, The Big Beat, about great drummers and brilliant book on drummers. Ringo was one of them. So Ringo through Max invited us all to a birthday party for his birthday at a Tittenhurst, the old white house with the white piano that Lennon had and uh, Ringo had bought it from him. So we go out there. I come to find out there's a jam room. And I said, unless they throw me out, I'm not leaving until I get to play with Ringo. <laughs> so we jammed late at night Had a ball later on. We're sitting there at three in the morning, you know, drinking some, you know, sipping on Cavassier, whatever talking to one of my greatest heroes ever one of the Beatles and uh, surprisingly he gave me his phone number and said stay in touch so I started calling every few weeks I live in LA he had a house in LA and we had a friendship we maintained I would be in England every year doing a run of shows usually six seven weeks he'd come to see me the acoustic shows now so it's kind of intimate you really get to see me sing play and uh, feature what I do, but anyway, in '89, he had called me in LA and said, "Look, obviously, I'm—you know—he's—he's he's, doesn't need money or fame, uh, got plenty of that—and he said he's just not feeling. He can't follow the Beatles, but he just felt bad he wasn't playing. He wasn't out being a musician, playing drums, and he's one of the greats of all time. So this is when he started the the All Star Band, is what you're saying? Yes, in '89, it was the first All Star Band. I had no idea. What was coming or the phone call? He calls me. I'm in this rental house in LA. And he says, So I've got to find a way to go be a musician on the road in a band. I'm going to do something called Ringo Starr and his All Star Band. And we're going to have everyone in the band do two or three of their own numbers, like a round robin. So we back each other up, we support each other, and we all spend two or three songs being a front man. I thought, Oh, well, that sounds great. And he says, I'm inviting my favorite musicians. I want you in the band. And I was flabbergasted. I couldn't believe that a Beatle just asked me to join a band. <laughs> and I was out of my mind, it was about a four-month run, you know, rehearsals in L.A., then we go on the road. And uh, I was so excited. I, I just thanked him profusely, said, you know, send the songs you want to do. Here's the, you know, the dates. Get ready for it. And I said, count me in. And I went to say goodbye after I thanked him. He said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you want to know who's in the band? And I'm like, you're in the band. He said, I'm in the band. He said, you're, you're our band leader. He said, I'm the band leader. I said, well, that's all I need to know. That's all you needed to know. He laughed. He said, well, thanks, Nils, But I want you to know who's in the band. Rick Danko, Levon Helm, Jim Keltner, Billy Preston, Dr. John, Clarence Clemens, me and you. Joe Walsh."
0: a bunch of nobodies huh
1: bunch of nobodies and i gotta tell you i just spending those four months with those guys and playing with them every night traveling with them and it's funny because we all at that point um you know, i was i was one of the younger guys but we all had good stories from the road but as we were telling stories on this little plane prop plane we rented to fly around and ringo would pipe in with his story and we realized, you know, it's like, oh my God, that's a great Beatles story. And and then he'd tell another Beatles story. You know, like we're like, wow, you got all these great Beatles stories. He's like, guys, this is the first band I've been in. <laughs> <laughs> all my stories are Beatles stories. They're all going
0: to be Beatles stories. I guess he didn't do any Rory Storm stories, huh?
1: Oh man, I you know, I'm sure he had plenty of those. But it was a very great honor. And it it imprints you, you know, when you work with people of that caliber and you go out, especially in front of an audience. You know, I mean, I do session work, this and that, but by far the favorite thing that I do is to walk in front of an audience. I love that. And you know what happens? I don't care if you're Ringo Starr, Elvis Presley, Bruce Springsteen, for three hours, nobody comes and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, let's try a different guitar sound. Nobody you're left alone, you take the energy of the crowd, and you get out of your way and take a gift I didn't ask for, and just let it come through you. And it's a beautiful, magical thing. I've had more than my share of great bands to be in. and Man, there—that I did the first two Ringo bands, all amazing, but to this day, everyone, after 32, three years, he's been doing it, and still was out this year. Yeah. Even he would admit that first band of characters might have been the the greatest collection of talent ever.
0: All right. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. Tell me immediately what just comes to your mind. What's maybe the greatest memory you have on stage?
1: Of uh, any time, anywhere? Any time, any
0: time, anywhere.
1: <laughs> oh, my Lord.
0: Come on. Don't think too hard.
1: Well, I mean, that's the thing. They're, they're all amazing. I I know know know. you've
0: had so many, but there must be one that just jumps out at you when you say, I'm on the stage. It's unbelievable what's happening.
1: Okay, well, this is a strange one, but it just popped into my head, okay? I'm an opening act with Grin, opening for Jay Giles, extraordinary band, 1970-71, traveling with Jay Giles, playing for 3,000 drunk college kids in Tampa, Florida. As we're used to, we go out and play our thirty minutes. The promoter says, "You play a minute over, you'll never work in Florida again." We we got it. I got a fifteen dollar Casio. Don't worry. At the end of the show, after being booed and bottles thrown at us by three thousand drunk college kids, I had just—I was a gymnast in junior high. That previous week, I'd gone to the YMCA in Washington D.C. had my old gymnastic teacher. Help me learn how to do a backflip while I play guitar off a mini tramp. So the tramp's there. We play for, open for Jay Giles, booing, bottles thrown. End of the night, band's hitting the last note. I run. I do a backflip with the guitar on. I land, bang, and we walk off stage. We go down into a dress room, a couple floors down. The promoter comes screaming into the room. You've got to go out and do an encore. Right now, do an encore. They're ripping the place apart. And I said, what are you talking about? They booed us and threw bottles for half an hour. I almost got blinded. Said, I know, but that flip drove them crazy. They're drunk. College kids are throwing chairs and destroying the building. You need to do an encore. We walked out, Robert, screaming, adulation, yelling, clapping. We did a song. They were loving us. And and we walked out to all kinds of whistles and claps and accolades. And I thought, welcome to show business, son. Welcome to show business.
0: There you go. <laughs> See that? You got Springsteen. You got Neil Young. You got Ringo. But you got 3,000 <laughs> drunk college kids. And that's the one that came to your mind. I love it. Yeah. All right. Before we leave this whole thing, which has been wonderful, tell me a little bit about this new album, Mountains.
1: Well, you know, I was, uh, of course, First time in my life I didn't tour. I always tour. You know, not I mean I go out for three weekends, come home for two months, go out for three weekends. I love to play and sing, mostly acoustic. My last tour before COVID was with a band, incredible electric band. We put out a double live CD called Weathered. It really came out great with my brother Tommy, Andy Newmark on drums, Kevin McCormick, the great Cindy Mizell singing. But COVID hits, I don't tour. For 3 years now. I'm, you know, Amy runs the ship here at home. I just help out. I, I'm like the house errand boy. And uh, I went out to my studio and I plug in a blues guitar sound and I jam along with BB King, Albert King, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Holly Wolf. And I just play with them for weeks, months. But after a while, I thought I've got to do something professionally. I can't tour safely. So I challenged myself, write an album, record it and share it, whatever comes out. And I really, you know, kind of no holds barred, not psychoanalyzing everything. It was also a very rough time. You know, I was having a lot of PTSD with all the craziness of, you know, Trump and the politics and all these divisions it reminded me of the Vietnam War, the draft where I had to go, you know, take a physical to go to Vietnam, uh, the assassinations. Santa's sickness you can DC, my band Grin played for some of the great civil rights marches, Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where they wanted to aim nuclear weapons at my home in Bethesda, Maryland, a lot of heavy stuff. I thought we'd evolved past that. After the last four years, especially with COVID and the politics, I was having a lot of flashbacks and PTSD to those rough times. So this record was very cathartic. I just wrote from the heart. And share from my gut where I was at, what was going on. Ain't the truth
3: enough. Ain't the truth enough for you. Me and the truth but always carry us through. It's not now, what do we do? It's not now,
2: what's they do?
1: All the vocals I played and sang live added some great touches, had some beautiful friends like David Crosby, rest rest his soul, Neil Young, the great Ron Carter, upright jazz bass player, Cindy Mizell singing over the record. And the only cover I did was probably Bruce's best greatest soul ballad, Back in Your Arms, got the Howard University Gospel Choir to do it with me. So a lot of great touches and help, but that was how the record came about. I realized I couldn't tour safely, and I challenged myself to write whatever came out and share it, period, and uh, came out a lot better than I thought it would.
0: Well, it's a terrific record. We've been playing underneath a little bit of a couple of the songs, Dream Killer and Ain't the Truth Enough. It's been a wonderful experience to have you on this show, Nils Lofgren. You're a remarkable musician. You've been through it all and (laughs) come out the other end. Good for you. I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast.
1: Thanks, Robert. hope you and I, we are the same age. Hope we can go through another 55 years of it together.
0: Now you're talking. All right. Thank you all. And we're going to listen now to that song that started off the episode. It's my song called My Love. I want to thank you all for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at Robert at And you can hear more from his band at Project GrandSlam.com. Warmth, Warmth of your heart, so many
2: See it all in colors so bold. The stars that shine up above.